0: Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee that Thou who dost rule heaven and earth are mindful of all things great and small, that Thou art mindful of us and of our needs and our battles as we face the powers of statism, of unbelief, and of evil. Give us boldness, give us courage, give us patience that we may fight a good fight and be more than conquerors through Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning is from Isaiah, the 45th chapter, verses 8 through 10. And our subject, Salvation and the Land. Isaiah 45. 8-10 8-10 through ten. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker, let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work he hath no hands? Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou, or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Salvation is so commonly used in the church as a term that we forget that the word is not that common in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it is only used four times in the Gospels. Other words are very often used, which are synonyms of salvation. The purpose the Bible has in using a variety of synonyms for salvation is to show the breadth of the meaning of salvation because too often people restrict its meaning and make it very narrow. Two scholars, Biven and Blizzard, have said, and I quote, In Hebrew, there are many synonyms for salvation, the word salvation itself is little used. Other words express this concept more powerfully. Righteousness is one of the synonyms for salvation. Zion is called the city of righteousness. The branch of David is called the Lord is our righteousness. Unquote. Our salvation is made possible by God's grace and God's righteousness. Christ is the grace of God unto us. He is our substitute. He assumed the death penalty upon sin for all of us. And so through him we have an imputed righteousness. We are acquitted. We are justified before God. Salvation is the satisfaction of God's justice or righteousness. It is an act of God's grace and the rendering of due justice through Christ's death as our substitution. <coughs> now the word commonly translated as righteousness means in Hebrew justice, virtue, victory, prosperity, and salvation. It is used in this sense in part in our scripture. Righteousness, for example, in verse 8, means the word of God which brings about salvation and the triumph of justice in all creation. Both heaven and earth have a responsive part in God's great work of recreation. And so the text begins by summoning heaven and earth to take part in this great work. The righteousness of God, we are told by Isaiah, is poured out by God from heaven. Now this is a surprising choice of words. We would think that perhaps grace should have been used, or mercy And had we written this passage, we would say, God poured out his mercy or his grace from heaven. But Isaiah says, God pours out his justice or righteousness. But when we look at scripture, we must realize that judgment, God's justice applied always precedes and accompanies salvation. If God had not chosen to redeem mankind, he would have left Adam and Eve in the garden. But his judgment upon them was the first step towards their salvation. The judgment of the flood was the beginning of the salvation of the world. The judgment upon Egypt was the redemption of Israel. And the judgment upon sin in the person of Christ who has made sin for us was the great work of redemption for the people of God. So our text says, justice is poured down on the earth like rain and the earth becomes fertile and sprouts Salvation and righteousness are justice. The word used here for salvation, yesha, means liberty, deliverance, prosperity, safety, or salvation. In other words, what this text tells us is that the result of salvation is salvation. The result of justice is justice. If the earth has received salvation and justice, it will bring them forth. Now what Isaiah here says, our Lord says, in different words, applying these to the matter of sanctification, the consequence of salvation. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven, sixteen through twenty, He shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire wherefore by their fruits shall ye know them. Just as a good tree brings forth good fruit, so too a saved and righteous person brings forth salvation and justice. And the earth he possesses, every area of life he exercises dominion over, does also. Salvation is a total concept, a total thing. It embraces all creation, heaven and earth, that respond in joy to the universal freedom under God from sin and death. Now in verses 9 and 10, Isaiah goes on to speak of the insanity of rebellion against God. The earthen vessel cannot argue against the potter, The potter has made it. The vessel is totally his creature. Neither can a child argue about his forthcoming birth. The idea is ridiculous. The whole creation, therefore, must respond to God's salvation. It cannot negate it, criticize it, argue with its timing, or complain about the way it has been made. E.J. Young, one of the great Old Testament scholars, says of these verses, and I quote, The entirety of nature must together bring forth the blessings commanded. If the earth does not open her bosom to receive the rain, then heaven and earth have not been successful in bringing forth Salvation, unquote. But men choose to argue with God, their maker. They insist that his word must be taken poetically, figuratively, and they are unwilling to believe that when God uses the language he does, for example, in verse 8, that he means exactly what he says. When God pours down salvation upon the earth, Salvation then wells forth, springs forth, buds forth, and produces fruit throughout the length and breadth of the earth. And so Young says, to quote him again, to strive with God is to contend with him in argument for the purpose of showing that what he has promised will not come to pass, unquote. It is absurd for God's creation to tell God what he is able to do or what he cannot do or what he should not do. This is the absurdity of doubt and unbelief. When we doubt God, we are saying, well, Lord, really, don't you know that uh, you cannot do this? When God tells us that the whole earth will show forth His glory in due time. And we try to explain that away. We're really saying, God, really, this is too much for you to hope for. Why don't you set a more modest goal for yourself? You save me, save a few of my friends, and uh, let's call it quits there. Salvation, however, is not something received and kept, but something which when received causes the very earth to burst forth and to bloom. Isaiah uses very exuberant language here because the truth exceeds the capacity of language. What Isaiah is saying is that when God saves man, That salvation creates something that bursts forth like flowers, grass, trees as they bud in the spring. We find it very easy to believe in judgment, God's judgment or disaster or man creating a mess out of the earth. The reason for this is Very simple. We have many scenarios of the future today with vivid intimations of hell on earth. And they are very much in the modern mood. They are believable forecasts because we believe in man's capacity to make a hell of earth. But forecasts about the future glory of the earth, tend to be unbelievable to us because we don't believe in the power of God. We'll come back to that in a moment, but first let us look at a definition of righteousness as one of the great biblical scholars of the last century, Robert Baker Girdlestone, gave it. And I quote, It is unfortunate that the English language should have grafted the Latin word justice, which is used in somewhat of a forensic sense, into the vocabulary which was already possessed of the good word righteousness, as it tends to create a distinction which has no existence in Scripture. Let me say parenthetically, Justice and righteousness are exactly the same words. To continue, this quality may be viewed, according to Scripture, in two lights. In its relative aspect, it implies conformity with the line or rule of God's law. In its absolute aspect, it is the exhibition of love to God and to one's neighbor, because love is the fulfilling of the law. But in neither of these senses does the word convey what we usually mean by justice. No distinction between the claims of justice and the claims of love is recognized in Scripture. To act in opposition to the principles of love to God and one's neighbor is to commit an injustice because it is a departure from the course marked out by God in his law. We have a very critical problem in all definition in our age. The reason for it is that since Hegel, if not earlier, our thinking has been dominated by the doctrine of evolutionary development. And certainly since Darwin, this has dominated our perspective. Such a view posits, as we have pointed out before, a conflict of interests as essential to the very nature of being. Chance and conflict govern the universe. It is a struggle for survival. There is no overall design or purpose, and it is only a chaos out of which certain things survive. There can be thus no underlying unity. As a result, in such a perspective, it is impossible for there to be any unity between concepts. Between love, grace, mercy, justice, judgment. There can be no unity. Everything in an evolutionary perspective is of necessity in conflict with everything else. So love has to be in conflict with law. Love has to be in conflict with justice. Everything has to be at odds. The same is true of matter and spirit in terms of this perspective. So that We insist on seeing body and mind in conflict. Given this premise, which is basic to the modern mind, man's salvation has a very limited effectiveness. His soul may be saved, but not much else. But if the universe is a unity made by God, what happens in one place affects all things else. If the universe is a seamless garment, so to speak, made by God, there cannot be the entrance of God's righteousness unto salvation at one point without repercussions for all things. Given God's sovereignty, given the fact of creation, given the harmony of interests which then ensues, Isaiah 45, verse 8, then is not poetry, but fact. Salvation pours down from God And the consequences spring forth. They burst forth in man and in all the earth. And all things then are progressively made new. The early church believed this. Let me cite from a couple of sentences from the liturgy of the very early church. I quote, As the joy of all things, Christ the truth, the light, the life, the resurrection of the world is manifested to those on earth in his goodness and has become a type of the resurrection to all granting divine forgiveness. On a throne in heaven, on a foal upon earth, born, O Christ the God, thou didst accept the praise of the angels and the hymn of the children, crying out to thee, Blessed is he that cometh to recall Adam. Note the implications of the language. Christ has come to recall Adam to righteousness, to make him a whole man again, so that in Christ we are renewed. He reestablishes God's covenant and he is the first fruits of them that sleep, so that with him we have the beginning of the resurrection of all creation. And we ourselves are a part of that resurrection when we are saved by Christ. We are told he is a restorer of all things to their original purpose, that he is a type of the resurrection the general resurrection at the end. Thus the early church believed that all things were in process of being made new because Christ had come. Thus what Isaiah 45 verse 8 tells us, is that salvation is not a dead-end road. In too much preaching today, that's all salvation amounts to. A dead-end road. Your soul is saved, and you sit back in the pew, and you indulge in some pious gush, and that's the end of it. But not so according to this scripture. Instead of being a dead-end road... The power of God unto salvation does not come to us to stop with us, but to go through us to all the earth, to all men and to the whole of the natural world. Girdlestone said the weakness of our word justice was its Latin origin. And because of its origin, it has a forensic quality, he said. Forensic means it has a relationship to a court of law and a formal disputation or debate. But biblical justice, biblical righteousness, is a way of life in conformity to the nature of the triune God. It is a life lived which is expressive of the renewed image of God in us. It is a life lived in Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thy so great salvation has been poured out upon us. And we pray, our Father, that it may burst forth through us to make all things new and to make us mighty and effectual unto the ends of the earth for thy name's sake. Bless us to this purpose. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes? uh, Christ is the second Adam. Was Adam the first Christ? No. Adam was the first man, and Christ was the second man as the head of a new humanity. Christ has two natures. In his human nature, he is the second Adam. In his divine nature, he is the Son of God, very God of very God. Adam perfect when he first was put on earth Adam was sinless, but he was not perfect because the word "perfect" in the scripture and originally in English means fully mature, so he was created, and he was not mature yet; he had to learn. He was like a child in some respects, although created a full-grown man. Yes? Not uh, on this lesson, but related to it. In uh, Matthew, is Matthew, Christ asked one of his disciples, do you love me? And then he asked it three times, I think it was, several times, uh, to the I disciple wondered, why are you Peter. asking me this? Peter, that's right. Yeah. Uh, would you comment on this? Yes, that's in the last chapter of the Gospel of John, and it's Peter. The whole point of it is, of course, Peter had, before the crucifixion, said that he was able to make a stand and be faithful to our Lord in the trial that was coming and so on. And our Lord had said before the cock crows thrice, you will have denied me three times. Which he did. So, of course, in this meeting, Peter was very much abashed. And so, having professed so great a love, ready to lay down his life for the Lord, the Lord now asks him, Simon, son of John, Simon Bar- Bar-Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? And the word that our Lord there uses is agape, which means a love that is selfless, a love that is like the grace of God and Peter's answer is, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And the word that Peter uses is phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O, which refers to ordinary human love. The Koine Greek has three words for love and our language only has one, so this creates a problem. Then he says the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? This time he uses the word phileo. And Peter answers, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, phileo, with a weak, frail, human love, but love nonetheless. So then the third time, he says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, feed my sheep. So, uh, first, the emphasis is A recognition that your love is not the superhuman kind of thing you imagined it to be. But if you love me, then show it. Feed my sheep. Now this is related to our text. Because what happens when salvation pours out upon us? It's to burst forth. So here is Simon feeling very low about the fact that he had betrayed Christ and sworn up and down that he didn't know the man. And our Lord says, all right, now you can prove your love to me. Feed my sheep. Take care of the flock. Go out as my servant. Thereby you will manifest that you've received the salvation, you've received the love because it's going forth from you. Used third time. He used Philio again. He used Agape the first time. Then the first, the first time, time and the second and third time. Peter used Philio each time. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, I may be wrong. I am I know the third time it's Philio. The second, The first time he said, Lovest thou me more than these? It could be that he... Simply said, lovest thou me, agape, the second time. I'll check that. I haven't looked at it for a while. But what happens is between the first and the third use, he moves from agape, A-G-A-P-E, to phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O, which is the word we have in Philadelphia. And philately, love of stamps. Yes talking to me about biblical things and wanted to know when we die do we go to heaven the age that we are when we die or is everyone in heaven the same age the answer to that is the bible does not tell us and it's none of our business thought <laughs> you, maybe I didn't know it then the other one was um, when our loved ones die and go to heaven do they know, uh, what's going on down here? Do they have, say if someone they'd prayed for becomes a Christian, would they know in heaven what's happened down here? Again, we don't have the answer to oh, I that. I don't think so either, but I thought I would ask. Yes. Asked. The Bible never speaks to satisfy our curiosity. Never. And that's one of the marks of all, uh, False, uh, books that purport to be revelations. They speak essentially to satisfy curiosity. Any other questions or comments? Well, if not, let us bow our heads down in prayer. Lord, it has been good for us to be here. Thy word is truth, and thy word is a lamp unto our feet. We give thanks unto thee, that thy hand is ever upon us for good. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, now and forevermore. Amen.